Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit might give us eyes to see the truth in your word. But as we contemplate this teaching of Jesus, which turns our expectations upside down, that we might receive it with joy and generosity. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. The parable, as you can see, is bookended by the same thought, beginning and end. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. And so the last will be first, and the first last. That's the moral of the story, if you will, those bookends on either side of the parable. They're delivering to us the lesson of the story. And that's actually the same lesson that the children of grace learned the hard way a few weeks ago. If you're familiar with the way things go at grace, you know that after the service, Something interesting happens. The kids of the church rush forward. Uh, They race to the front in order to get in line to receive gum and Skittles. And then Lori goes down the line, and one by one, each of them gets gum and Skittles. There's a competition, a race to see who can get there first. I'm the kind of person who naturally fears children, and so I give them what they want to keep them happy, because I don't want to suffer the consequences. But my wife, she's a stern disciplinarian. 
So when she sees the eagerness of children, she likes to give instructions and impose order on it. So she makes them line up. She makes them quietly wait to receive their reward. A few weeks ago, she went further. And once all the kids were lined up in order, she took the gum, she took the Skittles, and she moved from the front of the line all the way to the back of the line. And she started serving the kids who were last in line first so that the people who won the race and got there first were actually served last. And to rub salt in the wound, she said, and the first will be last and the last first. That was the lesson of her gesture. And that is the lesson of Jesus' story here as well. The principle that he tells us this parable to illustrate is exactly that. But in the kingdom, things work differently. In the kingdom of God, the people who are first will be last, and the people who are last will be first. The kingdom turns our rankings on their head. You can see how Jesus illustrates the story. I mean, his parable actually fits our example here in the gum line very well. We have a line of laborers. And those laborers are paid from last to first, not first to last. And the ones who show up last receive the same as the ones who have been there all day long. Jesus tells the story to illustrate that the first will be last and the last first. It's that simple. The lesson is simple. But if we apply the lesson some profound things begin to happen. If we actually think about the implications of what Jesus is saying, it gets pretty deep. And so that's what we're going to try to do, to take this simple story, this simple moral, and apply it to our lives in ways that might show where this is a lesson that we need to hear. Honestly, you'd probably grumble too if you found yourself in the same situation as these laborers, right? The master agrees with these men on a price, money they will earn by working for him in his vineyard. A denarius is what they will be paid. But then as they work throughout the course of the day, Jesus says the master keeps going out and recruiting more people. I mean, this is a guy who doesn't seem to be able to live at peace when there's unemployment in the world around him. Like, he goes out for more and more laborers over and over and over again. At the third hour, he goes out. At the sixth hour, he goes out. At the ninth, and then at the eleventh hour, when you would think the work is mostly done, he is still out there recruiting workers. So four extra waves of workers come in and join the guys who've been doing the work all along. And when it's time to settle up at the end of the day, he gives orders to his foreman to pay people in reverse order. Like not to pay the guys who he contracted with first, first, but to save them for last and instead start with those 11th hour workers. And as you picture what's going on in that line, it's kind of interesting. Because those guys who've been working all day long see that the Johnny-come-latelys are getting a denarius. 
which is what they expected to get. And they draw the obvious conclusion. If those guys, as little as they did, are getting a denarius, then considering all that I did, I'm probably getting, I don't know, like, like a bunch of denarii, right? Because I did so much more work than they did, it's only fair. Even so, when it comes to their turn, when they receive their payment, they get a denarius too. They get exactly the same as the men who did almost nothing in comparison to them. And so they grumble. Right? They grumble. They're not happy with this because they're being treated, as it seems to them, unfairly. They're being paid the same amount as people who did so much less than they did. We can understand the grievance, right? What they're upset about, the thing that seems to them fundamentally unjust, is that the master of the house is not giving equal pay for equal work. Like he's paying some people for a little bit of work, the same that he's paying other people who did a lot of work. And if that happened to you at your place of employment, you would grumble too. If it came time for payday and you looked at your check and you realized that the person who does the least at your job makes the same amount as you, that no matter how much more work you do, it doesn't result in getting paid more, you would be dissatisfied. You would not be happy with your employer. You would be grumbling, right? Of course you would. This is a parable. And as we've already seen when it comes to interpreting parables, parables are human stories that reflect or point to deeper spiritual realities. So when it comes to interpreting the story, not only do we look at the moral that we've been given, but we also do this thing where we try to see, well, what in the story represents the higher spiritual reality? This can be tricky, though. Because sometimes there's a tendency to over-interpret, to try to make every detail fit some higher reality. And as we've seen before, you don't want to do that. So there's, there's symbolism in these stories, but the question is where to draw the line. I think it's safe to say that, analogically speaking, the master of the house in the parable represents God. Because in a lot of these stories, the master is a kind of stand-in for God. I think it's also probably not much of a risk to say that the payment at the end of the day, that final reckoning, points to the final reckoning of judgment that we anticipate at the end of the age. So you might imagine there's a a judgment going on. God as master is, is rendering payment for what is owed, something like that. But beyond that, it does get harder. And various commenters will try to assign meaning to various aspects of the story. For example, all of those waves of workers. There are some commenters who will try to identify each hour with a certain like like epoch or age in the history of salvation. Ultimately, a kind of contrast between uh, the, the Jews, the people of God, over a long period of time, and the Gentiles, the Johnny-come-latelys who just show up in the New Testament and think suddenly, hey, we're here, we're equals with you guys, right? Something like that is going on in the parable, some commenters will say. 
Others will look at these workers and they'll say that the workers who come last are paid the same because they did more work or as much work as the others, only in less time. So that they represent people who come to faith later in life, but then produce much fruit in contrast to people maybe who've, who've had faith their whole lives, but haven't produced much fruits. Other commenters, though, say those 11th hour workers, those are idlers. Those are lazy guys. Those are bad workers. Otherwise, they would have been hired before now. Probably everybody in town knows these are not the guys you want. And so symbolically, the 11th hour workers represent believers who don't show much fruit in their life compared to those who've spent their whole lives serving others and serving Christ. That kind of over-interpretation is what drove Calvin nuts. When you read his commentary on this parable, it's mainly all of the things you shouldn't infer about the story. And, and for him, the reason is, it seems clear that Jesus is not talking about those things. Jesus doesn't make application of this parable to, to the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. Jesus doesn't say, well, these workers are like this and those workers are like that. When it comes to Jesus saying what the meaning of the parable is, he says, and the first will be last and the last will be first. That's the interpretation, Calvin says. This other stuff, don't get caught up in that. And I think he's wrong about that, although wrong for the right reason. Here's what I mean. I agree that Jesus doesn't make those applications and that if we make applications like that, we want to be careful about what we do. But I actually think because Jesus doesn't make these specific applications, it encourages us to apply this broad principle to a lot of different situations where it fits. In other words, I think something about this might speak to us wherever we happen to be grumbling. Whatever discontent we're dealing with this story might have something to say to us anywhere the principle applies. After all, in the New Testament, there is some grumbling about Gentile inclusion. Right? We do see Jewish Christians who seem to grumble over the fact that the Gentiles are being treated as equals. Right? These are people who think they can just show up after thousands of years and be grafted in and they're like us? I don't think so. These people show up and they were pagans yesterday and I'm supposed to eat with them like, like normal people? I don't think so. They didn't put into the work. They didn't suffer what we've suffered. They aren't even circumcised. Please, it makes no sense. It's not fair for God to treat us and them the same way. But that's a real controversy, real grumbling in the early church that does get addressed in Scripture. Right? Paul does speak to those things. If you look in Romans chapter 9, that's a chapter that actually engages with precisely those tensions. If Gentiles are included in God's covenant promise, what does that mean for Jews? What does it mean for Israel if suddenly all the nations are being, come, are, are, are being brought in? But as he speaks about grumbling over that, he also addresses a deeper kind of grumbling, one that is still very current in the church today. 
God's sovereign choice in salvation itself. Right? Today, I don't think Gentile inclusion is controversial. Right? You're not likely to visit a church and find people angry that there are Gentiles who are acting like they are equal partakers in salvation. Right? That's something we've had 2,000 years to acclimate ourselves with. And yet, election and predestination in general are not that way. Right? That is still something a lot of us grumble about. That is still something a lot of us look at and say it is fundamentally unfair. It doesn't make sense that God would do things the way that he does them. If you look in Romans 9, Paul adds a little bit of fuel to that fire, I think. Uh, he talks about the example of Isaac and Esau, uh, sorry, Jacob and Esau, the sons of Isaac, and the order that they come in, the birth order that they come in, but then the order that they come in in God's eyes. Paul says that for God's purpose of election to continue, the older will serve the younger, which is another way of saying the same thing that Jesus says in this parable. The first will be last, and the last will be first. That inversion of the birth order is the point that's being made. Before they're even born, this has taken place. Before the two sons have done any work that would distinguish them from one another, it is prophesied the older will serve the younger. And I'm sure, reading this, a lot of people, Esau, chief among them, would say that is unfair. That is not right. And Paul gets it. He engages with that question. Is it unjust for God to do things this way? He says, is there injustice on God's part? And answers, by no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And then he doubles down. He insists that this compassion, this grace, this mercy of God, this salvation of God depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. But if that's true, if salvation ultimately rests on God's will, not man's will or man's work, then isn't there something fundamentally contradictory in what God is doing? Like, how is it possible for God to judge? Again, Paul engages with this question. He says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? If this is the way it is, God is all-powerful, and it's God's choices that ultimately determine things. How could God judge anyone because who can resist his will? That's the argument. And interestingly, Paul does not refute the premise. Like, Paul doesn't say, well, of course you can resist his will, otherwise judgment would be unjust, but you could totally resist his will. People do it all the time. Paul, in his silence, grants the premise but then he challenges the human ability to judge the ways of God. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you to judge? You don't have standing to judge the fairness of what God does. That's the idea. Now, usually, if I talk about Romans 9, the reason I've pulled it out is to make this point. Um, if you're talking about grace... And no one ever raises the objections that they do when Paul talks about grace. You might not be talking about the same thing. 
Like when Paul talks about God's grace, it naturally triggers objections about the unfairness of God's ways. How can it be this way? All of that, those questions that he has to entertain and deal with in some way. But there are a lot of people who talk about grace and no one ever raises those objections, right? Those are not questions that people have because grace is not spoken of the way that Paul speaks of it. And so my point in raising it would be, hey, you want to be like Paul, right? You want to be the person who, when you talk about grace, everybody gets uncomfortable. Everybody's like, oh no, that that sounds terrible. That sounds like it's all up to God and not up to us. That sounds unfair. Not that it is unfair, but that those are the kinds of questions that you should naturally have if you're hearing it the way Paul would give it to you. And then Paul would answer it, and I think it's a good answer, basically to say, look, you're in no position to judge. You're a creature, right? You're finite. You're fallen. How can you stand in judgment over the ways of God? If he's good and he says he's good, you just have to take on faith that he's good. So the Jewish believer can't question the right of the Gentile to salvation because salvation isn't something you earn. It's a gift of God given according to God's choice. God can choose whomever he chooses. And you have to live with that and accept it. But the same goes for anyone who grumbles about whether God is right to choose or whether his plan is just or or whatever the source of the grumbling is. Basically, we're in no position to judge. Not only do we not have all the facts, we know only what he tells us, but also even if we had them all, we are not competent to render judgment on him. Of course, knowing who God is, shouldn't we assume that all of these things are better dealt with in his hands than in ours? A lot of people get uncomfortable if I say to them something like, well, your salvation is in God's hands, not not in yours. But honestly, I want my salvation to be in his hands, not in mine, because I know too much about my hands. I know too much about how reliable my intention is, my sincerity, or my work. If I have to rely on those things for assurance of my salvation, I'm never going to have it. It's only if I'm relying on him that I can ever feel anything close to assurance. Now, Paul, the way he deals with that kind of grumbling in Romans 9, he's totally right, of course. Everything he says is absolutely right. And yet, Jesus, when he confronts a similar kind of a situation, answers differently. He gives a different angle in his parable. He gives us something else to think about about the ways of God. And I think it's because it's a parable that this is possible. Because Jesus answers the question in a parable, we can see something we wouldn't see if he was just giving us kind of a doctrinal discourse. Jesus reveals to us the basic misunderstanding behind all of our grumbling. Because this is a human scenario. Jesus can't do what Paul does. Right, the, the, the master of the house can't say to the workers, who are you to question me? I'm so high above you that you just can't question my labor practices. He's already entered into negotiations with them. He's already done a contract with them. They obviously can question him because they've had this kind of relationship already. They're not doing anything wrong by questioning his actions, although they should have done it without grumbling. Right, The master of the house may be a stand-in for God, but he's not the same as God in the story. And that helps us because while God doesn't have to justify himself to us, the master of the house does 
justify himself to these grumbling laborers, and the justification works in both situations. Right? This parable gives us principles and analogies that help us understand how what seems unfair or unjust to us might actually be exactly the opposite of what we think it is. Right? Jesus' is master of the house identifies the problem. The laborers are grumbling because they fundamentally misunderstand what's happening. They've forgotten that everyone in line has gotten what was owed. He says to one of the men who grumbles, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. So no one's being cheated. No one's not getting what they were told to expect. Everyone is being paid what they are owed. Everyone, by definition, is receiving justice. So the action of the master that the workers resent is not injustice. It's generosity. The master says, I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? If you approach salvation with a sense of entitlement, if you treat salvation as a question of being paid what you deserve, then you'll always grumble at the way God does it. It will never make sense. But once you realize that for sinners, justice is condemnation. For sinners, getting what you deserve is the last thing you want. That getting what you deserve is punishment. Then anything more than that can only be an act of mercy. Anything more than that can only be divine generosity. So you have to ask yourself, what kind of laborer are you? If you think about where we've come in Matthew's gospel, the bigger picture, in Matthew 18, Jesus set a certain context. He talked about repentance. He talked about forgiveness, the way that we receive mercy. And because we receive mercy, we're meant to show mercy. And then in the next chapter in Matthew 19, he showed us that the law condemns us all. It condemns everyone. He says there's no way that you can bend the law and get around that condemnation, that need for repentance. But also there's no way that you can keep the law and be a righteous person so that you don't need to repent either. So that, as we learned last time, and we kind of ended with this, salvation is possible only because with God, all things are possible. If it weren't for God, salvation wouldn't be possible at all. And now, in Matthew 20, having laid that groundwork, we open with a parable about generosity, about a master who rewards those who are not owed, who gives people things that they have not earned. And it's actually beautiful. If you could go back to Matthew 19, to last week's sermon, to the story of the rich young man, and if you'd asked him what kind of laborer he was, I think he would have identified with the guys who started at the beginning of the day, those original laborers. He would have seen himself as a man who had worked for his reward from sunup and deserved what he had coming to him. But what kind of laborer do you think you are? 
How you answer that is going to determine whether or not you grumble at the ways of God or feel gratitude. If you think you've put in a full day's righteousness and you're ready to settle up, then yes, you're going to grumble at the ways of God. But if you realize that at best you are an 11th hour worker, then things to you look very different. We don't get into the minds of all of the workers. At most, we get into the grumbler's psychology a little bit. But I tell you, the person whose mind I'd love to get into, if I could, is one of those 11th hour guys. And I'd like to think about how it felt to be out there on the streets when everybody else was at work, to be standing out there hoping that somebody would come along. I've seen these guys out there even today, day laborers congregating on the street, waiting for some random contractor to come along and say, hey, I need some guys, hop in the back of the truck. That's the situation. They've seen other men be hired and sent out into the vineyards. But by this point, at the 11th hour, these guys are thinking about what comes next. They're thinking about what it means to go home with empty pockets, to return to their wives and their children with nothing to show for the day that they went out there in hope. Now, finally, it's coming to an end, and they've got nothing. Guys who, when you approach them on the street, your question is, what are you still doing out here idling? Why are you standing idle? Guys who clearly feel the judgment of the society around them. And now suddenly... They're approached by this master who it seems can't get enough men to work for him. Even though the work is almost done, even though any reasonable person would say, you know what, the guys I have out there are plenty, here's a guy who comes along, he finds these men unemployed and says, hey, go into my vineyard, go and work. They're just grateful for anything. right? They're just grateful like like the prodigal for the scraps. Like, we'll just take whatever, you know, you prorate the work. I, it's better than going home with nothing. Imagine being one of those guys when it's time to line up. Imagine standing in that line and then going first and what your expectations are. Those guys are getting a denarius, so I'm getting what? Uh, a tenth of a denarius? Whatever that is. But it's something. And then suddenly, they put in your hand a denarius. And you have to think to yourself, well, there's been a mistake. Maybe I shouldn't say anything. <laughs> Maybe not mention. You know, I don't think I'm one of those guys. Like what they receive is a joy because they haven't done the work. Like all they can do is receive it in gratitude because they haven't earned it. The snapshot we get is of the men who resent this. But I want you to imagine what it would have been like to be one of the men who received it what that would have felt like to receive that divine gratitude. Because that's who you are if you trust in Jesus Christ. He's placed that treasure into your hands that you didn't work for, that you didn't earn, and there it is. And it feels like it must be a mistake. It feels like he must be confused about which kind of person you are. But he's not. He's showing generosity to you, grace Mercy is God's generosity to us. And when you see that, it changes everything. The whole point of God's plan of salvation, if you think about it, the reason why he does things the way that he does them is to make this point really clear. 
to make it obvious that salvation is not about justice, but it's about mercy. God does things the way that he does them to make it clear that you can't congratulate yourself for your own salvation. All you can do is thank him for it. God does things the way that he does them to root out your stubborn pride and to replace it with gratitude. The scandal of the church today, I think, is that the ones who receive God's mercy are all too often the ones who grumble. The very same people that God places the treasure in our hands, we're the ones who then turn around and say, it doesn't seem fair to me. It doesn't seem right the way God does this stuff. That's the incredible reality, that we receive the generosity, but we don't see it as generosity. And we fret over whether or not God's ways are really fair. So that we of all people need to be taught the last will be first and the first will be last. When you hear those words, the last will be first and the first will be last, if you hear them and your reaction is, that sounds like injustice to me, you're not hearing rightly. You think that's not fair. The first have earned their place. How can God take it from them? The last are last for a reason. Why should they be rewarded? But if the first stay first and the last stay last, there will be no mercy, only justice. There's no life eternal, only punishment. And the thing we grumble about when we grumble about the ways of God is grace. We are grumbling about God's grace. And that's actually what people do. Flannery O'Connor wrote that all human nature vigorously resists grace because grace changes us and the change is painful. I think she's right about that, but grace does more. Grace, as Jesus shows us here, flips the order of things upside down. It challenges our sense of who is deserving, of what we deserve, and how we should think about what we have received. What we desperately need as a church is not to convince the world of God's goodness. It might be to convince ourselves. What we need is not a better apologetic. What we need is a better sense of the reality of God's generosity to us. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.